0: I'd like to invite you to cast your mind back to the first day of the retreat and the qualities that you really needed to cultivate in order to settle into this space and this silence and the stillness of the retreat. And how much you were really asked to bring forth those inner qualities of dedication and perseverance and steadiness and patience and calmness amidst all the storms. And there's a lesson to be learned from that because they may be exactly the same qualities that you're asked to bring forth on this last full day of the retreat. The Buddha gave a lot of attention or a lot of encouragement for us to understand what it is that, that covers up, or camouflages the natural brightness and clarity of our own minds and hearts. Because what it is that covers up and camouflages the natural brightness and clarity of our minds and hearts are, of course, exactly the same inner events that sabotage and hijack our intentions in our lives. And when the Buddha really explored this through looking at his own mind. He spotted, actually, what we often refer to as the kind of five hindrances, but they're kind of more accurately translated as the five veiling factors. It's as if we were to throw a kind of shawl over the bell. You just wouldn't be able to see the bell very clearly. And in a way the list is short and it's a very universal list, but we see the movement of these these factors within ourselves, these states within ourselves, the craving for sensual pleasure which accounts for much of our distractedness, the aversion which often sets up such inner storms of torment and resistance and judgment and comparison, Many of you have become well acquainted with the mental factor of sloth and torpor, you know, the dullness that just does not allow us to see anything at all. And, you know, others of you may have found yourself specializing more in restlessness and worry, you know, agitation and worry. And, of course, the last of these factors is doubt. Now when you look at the fourth way of establishing mindfulness, it initially looks at, the, at this uh, like a series of lists. And apparently between the different translations of Pali, Chinese, Sanskrit, the really common factors are, are these two lists of the five hindrances and the factors of awakening. And, of course, it's very easy to be somewhat dismissive of the five hindrances as something that you get over in a retreat, you know, and then your practice starts. (laughs) These are, of course, very much life experiences, aren't they? We see them thread their way through our lives. And the Buddha very much spoke about a continuum, actually, because really, he says, if you look behind the five hindrances... That they are the five manifestations of the three big ones of greed, hatred, and delusion. And that greed, hatred, and delusion, if you look behind that, they are the three manifestations of what is referred to as ignorance, confusion, just simply not knowing how things actually are. So the Buddha spoke about this kind of continuum from, you know, confusion, delusion. manifested as greed, hatred, delusion, and that manifesting in the form of the five veiling factors. But of course, in certain terms of, of this practice, the five veiling factors are the most accessible way that we can actually really begin to look at those core confusions, the ways that, you know, the confusions about we have around impermanence, the ambivalent relationship we have around impermanence, the confusion and resistance we have to understanding dukkha, and the confusion and resistance we have to understanding non-self that manifests as our clinging to self. So the Buddha said to understand those core confusions, those core arguments, we actually start with looking at their manifestations in these five veiling factors. Now what we actually appreciate about these five veiling factors is the way that they actually do sabotage intentionality. And it's really interesting to trace that, not only in our practice, but in our life. You know, most of us don't get up in the morning thinking this is a Fantastic day for aversion, isn't you know? it? But we tend, you know, t- tend to want to go out into the world, you know, with as much kindness and befriending as we can, until we meet that one trigger point where aversion starts to arise, and then we see that intentionality around matter just gets lost, doesn't it? Most of us would like to go out into our days with some calmness and collectedness again until that you know, there's that trigger that stimulates the agitation and worry and the calmness and collectedness, the intention of that becomes like a distant memory. So it's very important to appreciate the power of these five states and the way they're like weather systems that move through our mind and every time our consciousness gets, every time our consciousness or our attention gets kind of lost in them, intention pretty much disappears. So again in this, the Buddha did not present a path, you know, where we just hammer away at these failing factors. He really spoke about the path of of awakening in the midst of them. Awakening in the midst of them, a path of great immediacy, not awakening after they go away, but loosening the power of these failing factors by cultivating, by cultivating sati, mindfulness. It's a quality of remembering you know, and sati very much has that kind of connotation of remembering. It It's not only remembering to be present, but it's remembering our intentions. It's remembering our deepest aspirations and values. It's remembering our love of being awake. It speaks very much about the, the, the awakening factor of investigation, experientially and reflectively to actually know what's going on and then to understand what's going on. Hmm? To understand what's actually going on, to be able to explore that, to investigate it, to be curious about it. It speaks very much about the awakening factor of of energy and the Pali word for energy is actually virya, which some of you know has that curious translation of courage or heroism. You know, so it's not just about being energetic, it's about having that courage and heroism to actually be still amidst the tides of those patterns that so easily sweep us away. Speaks about the awakening factor of joy, I think a very crucial part of this practice. You know, and again, not exhilaration, but nurturing that capacity for appreciating, for honoring, for being able, you know, we don't contrive joy, we make room for joy. We make room for joy by allowing much of the agitations to calm so that we can be touched. Speaks about the awakening factor of tranquility, and actually, in, in Pali, of course, this is also a verb. So, you know, we speak about tranquilizing the moment, <laughs> which is not about taking a tranquilizer, you know, or, or going into some sort of oblivious state, but actually calming, calming the moment, calming the agitations. Really, bringing this forth into a verb, you know, into into a relational sense, calming the thought storms, calming the the planning, the rehearsal, the 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 obsessions, the preoccupations, and we learn to do this very much in the practice. It speaks about the awakening factor of concentration, you know, this capacity to sustain attention which is very important, you know. I, I think sometimes, you know, people have this kind of draw towards what's often referred to as choiceless awareness, you know. But without the ground of concentration, I think for many people, it becomes choiceless spaciness. <laughs> you know, and there is that element within mindfulness of concentration, of being able to sustain attention in the present moment. Hmm? And, you know, it's often, I think, an Achilles heel in many people's practice. And, you know, these qualities are not just meditative skills, they are life skills, you know. And it's not a forced kind of concentration, you know. But it's just that willingness to sustain that relationship, moment to moment, often with our anchor of attention. It very much speaks about the awakening factor of equanimity, of poise, of balance, of being willing to be equally near all things, and how much equanimity is really calming those energies of moving towards and moving away from, of pursuing and avoiding. And actually in the text, equanimity is often used interchangeably with nibbana or liberation, really cooling the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion, cooling the agitation of the veiling factors. And again, this is both a fruition, but it's also a cultivation and a practice. You know, And where do we practice it? In all those moments where we find ourselves in that place of leaning forward towards something, that kind of approach energy or leaning backwards away from something, that kind of aversion avoidance mechanism, and learning to be upright, learning to be upright. And I think there's a tremendous dignity in equanimity. You know, I think so often when we're so caught by those pulls, you know, towards and away from, in some ways we feel a a kind of inner abandonment, you know, that we've become sort of captured or entranced by the, the, the pleasure or pain that we've invested as being implicit in experiences or objects or events. So learning that poise of being upright. I and mean, this is really allows us a, a life of a, a, a genuine sense of inner freedom, you know, of just not being captured by, not being caught by. So learning in our practice, you know, when we see the the mental states of, of the veiling factors arising, when we see the the, the craving for sensual pleasure, the distractedness, and sometimes this is also by the way, just in our thoughts. You know, the the leaning into fantasy, the leaning into imagining, when when we see the aversive fa- patterns arising or the softened torpor or the agitation and worry or the doubt to learn, ah, ah, this is what's going on. Now I bring mindfulness into the midst of that. I bring some investigation into the midst of that. It's really not concerned so much with the contents of experience, because the contents of experience are reified by the movement of these veiling factors. You know, and we get very caught by the contents of our experience. But it's not the contents that's so important, it's how those contents are actually being reified and solidified through the movement of of craving or aversion or, or restlessness or and worry. It solidifies content. So we're moving back behind content. It's not dismissive, you know, it's not rejecting, but really taking care of the state of our mind and what is being cultivated, what is being nurtured moment to moment. Shantideva in his teaching on compassion said, whatever you are doing, be aware of the state of your mind, that this is the path of the Bodhisattva. This is the path of compassion. It's knowing that everything arises many ways from that, and from the clarity or the confusion of our own mind-heart. And we learn to care for that. We learn to care for that moment to moment, curious about what is actually happening within our own hearts and minds, how we're moving through our days, how we're taking care of the moment that we're in, knowing that that's the only moment we actually can take care of, and the only moment that we actually can truly transform. So again, just taking our seat, finding a posture of embodied intention, embodied wakefulness, a posture of embodied mindfulness and balance, Cultivating a posture of embodied calmness and stillness. And just having a felt sense of what it is to rest within that embodied intentionality in a body of wakefulness. And in the mind, actually tasting those qualities through the body. And cultivating some mindfulness of our state of mind in this moment. any of those winds of craving or aversion or dullness or agitation or doubt are present. Simple knowing of them, knowing of them as winds that move through and in the midst of cultivating, of calming, of befriending, of attending, Established within the body, within the body sitting, touching, the body listening, the body breathing, establishing present moment recollection.